Good evening, everyone. If you happen to see the little chocolate hearts out by the uh, bulletin board, today is February 14th. So uh, not only is there a day for romantic love, it's also a time for universal love. We can expand the holiday and be everybody's favorite aunt and uncle and grandparent who sends them Valentine gifts uh, of that sort of great, great heart, great love. So tonight, um, I'm going to expand and carry on from uh, where uh, I left off before on the Anapanasati Sutta. The first uh, talk I gave was on the 16 steps of developing mindfulness of breathing. And then that particular discourse goes from there into how to use mindfulness of breathing as a basis to, des- to describe or to explore um, the four foundations of mindfulness. So this is a classic list, it's on Sally's map. You probably, many of you have heard about the four foundations, have practiced with them. But it's, um, it's a place where we're encouraged to develop uh, mindful awareness of these four areas of our experience, especially if we want to untangle the knots that cause suffering. And so tonight we're going to talk about the second foundation of mindfulness, which is the word Vedna. And we've been exploring that the last couple of mornings um, as a meditative experience becoming more mindful of Vedna. And again, Vedna is that part of our moment-by-moment experience that is either pleasant, painful, or neutral, or between pleasant and painful. And so any moment of your life in the many decades you're alive, every single moment has had a Vedana quality to it. So it doesn't come and go in terms of it was there in the morning, but it didn't come back again till the evening. It's actually a quality of every single moment. Uh, there's this tone of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And given the amount that it influences us, it's a surprising thing that many of us are not that aware or haven't developed um, an ability to know that that's part of our experience. Often, as we're living in a speedy or less conscious lifestyle, um, we are having Vedana in every moment, but we're already in a response to the Vedana, and we don't notice that the moment has a neutral quality or has a pleasant quality. You can assume it's there when you eat your favorite uh, food or when you see a beautiful uh, sunset, but that's usually not the thing your attention lands on, the pleasantness of the experience. You're either drawn into the experience, drawn away, or if it's neutral, most minds tend to relax, space out, um, take a break in neutral experiences, or go looking around for something more pleasant. So it's been a part of our experience. It's been at the root of a lot of our reactivity. and it's right there in the experience. It's not happening somewhere else and impacting us in some secondary fashion. It's actually been in the stream of all of our experiences. But we often haven't developed a very conscious relationship to that actual experience, the actual unpleasantness of an experience 
or the actual pleasure of an experience or the actual neutrality and then seeing the impact that's having on the relationship we're developing to that stream of experiences in those moments. So there are, <clears throat> there are four foundations of mindfulness and Richard mentioned them uh, last night. Vedna is the second. The first one is mindfulness of the body. Uh, the second one is Vedna. It gets translated as feeling or feeling tone. And I, I really, this is one poly word it's worth working for because I didn't find feeling or feeling tone gave me any more intuition about what I was exploring. Um, so I just finally chose the word Vedana. Um, the third foundation of mindfulness is the mind itself, all of its moods and mental states. And then the fourth foundation are all the habits and patterns that cause our suffering or uh, support our liberation. And that's, one, that's called the Dhammas. So we'll talk more about the third and fourth foundations of mindfulness. In some ways we've talked some about the first foundation of mindfulness in terms of becoming more aware of the body, more aware of the body as a sense of elements, more aware of the body in terms of the postures you're in, in your daily activities. Uh, this morning looking at intention and how and why we're moving our body or making choices in our mind. So we've already actually been in our bodies doing walking meditation. That's often the, the basis of that is an embodiment while we're walking uh, back and forth. So you've already uh, been developing a relationship to the first foundation of mindfulness. And so <clears throat> we're suggesting in the instructions earlier, the last couple of days, now this talk of looking at what's called the second foundation of mindfulness um, on Vedana. So before I go into that, <clears throat> I just want to um, back up a little bit and tell uh, a story that when I was a teenager, um, my neighbor's kids went to this uh, canoeing expedition camp. And it really, it's the wrong idea to even call it a camp because uh, it was a very challenging experience. So because they enjoyed it, I had to go try it. <laughs> I didn't want to try it, but my uh, parents said, sounds good. And they showed me the brochure and it looked like there were happy kids paddling canoes. I was like, yeah. You know, summer's long, why not? But it was really like <clears throat> a trekking expedition experience where we would spend weeks uh, canoeing long distances and sleeping on the ground, being out in the rain. It's nothing like the brochure. <laughs> <laughs> and you could kind of say that that's an analogy for life. It's nothing like the brochure. <laughs> and... <clears throat> I went there many years as a expeditioner, as a camper, and then I taught there for a number of years as a staff. And there'd be a transformation that happened. It was really interesting. It was my first exposure to how ex experiences could have a very deep impact on who you were and how you were experiencing life. So I'd go to this camp and the first week would be uh, really horrible and full of a lot of regret because uh, right away you had all your creature comforts taken away from you. Um, there were black flies and mosquitoes. You were sleeping on the ground. It could never be as comfortable as a, as a bed. There was no hot water. Um, 
it would rain on you, you know, and it would not rain by choice or on any schedule. It would just like rain whatever it wanted. <laughs> and you'd, you'd paddle, and like people were getting blisters on their hands because we'd paddle all day long. It was, it was hard work. But <clears throat> after about the first week, something would transform. And one by one, when I was leading the groups, I could see the kids when they'd be dropping in, something would begin to transform. And I noticed it many times when I was there as a camper and many times when I was staff and it actually became something we could rely upon that if you could just endure the first week, something would open up and people's eyes would get brighter, their, um, their jokes would be funnier, their uh, capacity to be in hard circumstances but have something noble come out of them rather than just complaining. And I used to um, take 10-year-olds out for weeks uh, canoeing. And they'd be homesick and they'd be like, where's the TV? Where's my parents? Why it's so hard? Why don't they love me? And then they sent me here. <laughs> but then you'd see something open up in them and this like, this, you know, this soul would come out of them, this energy, this like greatness that had been hidden. So that would happen for me every summer. And then I'd go home, and a lot of my friends had had summer jobs, or, and they were about where, they, about where I'd left them, maybe a little more bored because of the summer. And I noticed that I was really different, but a few weeks home, it would, I would start to lose it, and then I'd become kind of like I was. So early on in my life, there was a mission, like, what is happening at that camp? And I don't have any language for it, but it makes life so much more better. And as it wears off, life gets so much more petty and insecure. And, uh, and I, I just kept opening and then closing and opening and closing. And early on, as if I thought, if I could find a way to stay open, I would do it because life is so much better. And if I could find a way not to close down, I would do it because life gets so petty and insecure. And I'm I get caught up in the, the net of my own secure insecurities. And then I started meeting people who had done decades of this canoe trekking, and there was something unshakable about them. They were the first people that I looked around, I was like, you're on to something, because when it rains, you smile. And on a hard day, I hear you humming a song. And I don't know anybody else who would be as happy in as many conditions as we are. And you keep choosing. You don't choose comfort. You're not looking for pain, but you're not oriented towards comfort. And there's just something remarkable about uh, being with somebody like that. Um, so that was sort of the, uh, the ignition of what has become my uh, spiritual path, was spending a lot of time in the wilderness and opening up to a greater range of experiences. And then my first uh, meditation retreat, <clears throat> I realized I was not the first person who had discovered this. <laughs> I was just the first person I knew who had discovered it, and I realized there was a whole art and centuries, if not millennia, of people who had been discovering similar things, and somebody had mapped it out much better than I was at that age. And it turns out Vedana is a big part of that. Vedana plays a big role in our entrapment and in our liberation. The ability to breathe with a greater range of Vedana 
is uh, central to a freedom that is so worth whatever we give up in terms of comfort. And when we orient towards comfort, that begins to close down our world and it begins to actually make a very small place that that we can find well-being. So many of you might know the the poet and writer uh, Khalil Gibran. Um, He wrote something that um, for a while was a bit of my manifesto um, as I was trying to figure this out. And one little sentence he said, uh, the lust for comfort, that stealthy thing that enters your house as a guest, then becomes the host and then the master. And that's what I saw. I'd go from camping back to a, a middle-class life, maybe an affluent middle-class life. And I would love the hot water and I would love the lack of mosquitoes and I would love the fact we could just bake our food right there. We wanted to build a fire and love the bed. And for a couple of weeks, I wasn't entrapped by it. It was great. But slowly, that would become necessary. It would become necessary again to have comfort. And bit by bit, it would erode to where I couldn't get out of, the, I couldn't be comfortable outside those circumstances. So then comfort becomes not a guest in your experience that comes and goes, but becomes the host. And comfort is hosting you, and you're now dependent on, host, on comfort. And then finally, uh, comfort becomes your master, and you're quite actually ensnared and disempowered because uh, your, your realm of comfort is so dominating you. What you need to be comfortable starts to be more and more fragile. That's all I had before I came to the Dharma was sort of little quotes like that um, and a lot of experience, but I didn't have a view on it. I didn't have an understanding. And then uh, this tradition really opened that up and gave a lot more uh, framework on it. And then this teaching on Vedana and working with it really uh, mapped out what I had been stumbling across when I was younger. So this quality of Vedana, it's conditional. And one of our conventional relationships to it is we don't quite realize Uh, the conditions of our pleasure and pain and the neutrality, we tend to fuse the pleasure we're experiencing with the experience itself. So I had a really good time with so-and-so, therefore, whenever I hang out with so-and-so, it should be pleasant. Or I really enjoyed this type of food, and I've done it several times, so it should always be pleasant. So we tend to lock in the pleasure or the pain with the experience. And then we're navigating pleasure and pain by navigating experiences and trying to have influence over our pleasure or pain by the experiences we're choosing. But pleasure and pain can't be controlled and it can't be dialed in. You can't really uh, predict it. And you you can influence it but it definitely is way beyond your control. And it turns out that opening up to a greater range of discomfort and the truth of pleasure that it's temporary brings a secondary type of pleasure that we cultivate here. It's not based on pleasant experiences. It's based on a heart and a mind that's not being agitated or limited 
by what's pleasant, neutral or unpleasant. And it turns out that's a deeper pleasure and security, a heart and a mind that isn't tripped up by the arising of unpleasant experiences, a heart and a mind that isn't clinging to and feeling somewhat longing for pleasant experiences, or a heart and a mind that isn't bored by neutral experiences. That heart and mind knows a type of well-being that has become uncoupled from the needs of pleasure and avoiding pain. So that's what we're doing here, we're uncoupling that. There's a collection of discourses on Vedna in the Pali Canon and Samyutta Nikaya number 36 and there's a couple of dozen discourses. But uh, some of the short ones, um, the Buddha was talking to some of the practitioners around him and he said, just as various winds blow in the sky, winds from the east and from the west, from the north and the south, dusty winds, dustless winds, cold winds and hot winds, mild winds and strong winds, so too various Vedna arise in this body, this heart, this mind. So that's an orientation. Just as you will never control the direction of the wind or what comes in on the wind, it's not going to happen. But you can learn to uh, be content independent of the weather. And that means to be content in a greater range of weather you don't try to control the wind. You don't try to control what comes in on the wind. You learn how to be uh, oriented and how to respond to the weather conditions you're in. And Vedana is like that. We think that if we won the lottery, we might be able to control our experiences enough or had enough success in life that we can control all the elements that will have more pleasure and can keep pain away. And it's actually just not how uh, how it actually works. There's always uh, illness that comes in, there's always intrusion, and uh, pleasure is actually kind of flick, fickle. The pleasure of uh, what you enjoy. My um, dad sent me a pound of M&Ms when I was a monk in Burma. <laughs> I was very generous of him, and right away in my deep practice, I was like, ah, I could eat all these, you know, one by one, spread out the pleasure. I could give them around and the pleasure would come from the joy of others. I'll just have one. <laughs> I had the one M&M and I was, I'd never had such a mindful M&M and definitely whew, right there, American chocolate, mmm, so good. But it faded, the sweetness stayed, but the pleasure actually faded and I was like, oh, it's just kind of sweet. And now there's that aftertaste. And there's a whole, you know, almost a pound of M&Ms, this aftertaste. And the idea of giving it to all my friends began to crumble. And I'll have another one. I'll, I'll spread it around tomorrow, but today I'll have a second and a third. And actually, they started to be unpleasant. But I needed another one to fend off the decay of the flavor. <laughs> And this, and then I was like, you've been a monk now for a year. I think you can handle a pound of M&Ms. <laughs> oh, the hubris. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd handled some pretty hard things at that point, And I was defeated, uh, <laughs> defeated by a pound of M&Ms. And it was not a pleasant experience. Uh, it was 
there was displeasure in the defeat. There was this pleasure in this, um, this is so sweet. But there was this obsession in the mind, this gravitational pull. It's like, really, the breath and those M&Ms? Right? <laughs> but you yourself know they're not that rewarding. And it's like, I know, but they're right there. Like, oh, my God, what do I do? And so uh, I slowly ate them all. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was gross. But the tendency, the tendency to, uh, to reach for pleasure, uh, I learned something that, that has served me a long time. Uh, in that defeat, I learned about the intensity of the habit and the longing and the swift addictive property of of having something that I could choose versus being with the breath and being open to whatever, I could have an experience. So uh, Vedana arises on its own conditions. It's not that every M&M is pleasurable. It's not that every uh, sound of the rain is pleasurable. It's not that things that you can count on that have been pleasurable will be pleasurable. So when you begin to track Vedana, Sometimes you start to get uh, a little bit of knowledge around Vedana reveals pleasure is not as pleasant as you thought it would be. Uh, Neutral experiences are hard to sustain interest in. And then unpleasant experiences are still pretty unpleasant. (laughs) So when you first open up to Vedana, there's a reason that you've been having these reactions. A little bit of Vedana consciousness starts to show that it's not actually a very rewarding way to cultivate happiness. But then going into it further, you can be, when you let go of these compulsions around Vedana, the mind isn't as agitated. And then there's a well-being that's very hard to put your finger on because it's not pleasant, but it's well. And what is that wellness that doesn't actually rest on pleasantness? You're well, you're not afflicted, but you don't need something pleasant to prop up your wellness. You're just in a stream of mind, you're open. There could be even some unpleasant experiences, but it hasn't gotten into your heart, hasn't gotten into your mind. And then the Vedanas can kind of come and go at the sense doors, and you have a stream of well-being in a range of experiences that before you would have found agitating. So, that one moment of defeat around the M&Ms has served me and now it can serve you as, uh, and ripple out to uh, impact the world about being defeated by M&Ms. There's also um, a similar analogy to the winds. Uh, there's this um, analogy of the guest house. And so suppose there was a guest house at a major crossroads and you don't know who's traveling you just have a guest house on a busy road and people, random people show up. You, don't, you have not determined who's going to come to your guest house. You just have a guest house and people need it. And they only stay for so long. They might stay for a night, they might stay for several. That's also not your choice if you have a guest house. So just as uh, if you had a guest house, people would come from the east and the west and the north and they would lodge there. They'd be all different castes. In the same way, Vedana, uh, your body and your heart and your mind are guest house to the visiting Vedana. If you have that attitude, I'm just uh, sitting here and pain is visiting, 
and I am a guest house for some unpleasant experiences, they themselves move on. They're not actually setting a permanent lodging in you. They themselves move on, but so is pleasure. Pleasure also moves on, and neutrality moves on. And then in a different discourse, uh, right in that same collection, he said, these Vedanas, these three Vedanas are impermanent, they're conditioned, they're dependently arisen, they're subject to destruction, they're subject to vanishing, subject to fading away, subject to secession. What three Vedanas, the pleasant Vedana, the painful Vedana, and neutral Vedana. So with the, the wind in the sky, the guest house, and this uh, short stanza on impermanence. He's trying to show this as a natural property of Vedana. Pleasure is not meant to last. It's not in the nature of pleasure to last. It's in the nature of pleasure to be there out of the conditions, and then it fades and something else arises. Your eventual liberation will be fine with that. Your moderate liberation is okay with that to a degree. Your moderate imprisonment has a problem with that. And your greatest imprisonment is really uh, set against it. Just as uh, Richard said, uh, you can be in other spiritual traditions and they talk about some bliss union divine uh, uh, merging that might happen one day. And in our path, it's the choice between one or two arrows. <laughs> There's no non-arrow. There's no zero arrows. Uh, so you can do some damage control, uh, some harm reduction, but there's going to be arrows. It's just the nature of this incarnation. If you wanted pleasure, uh, you have to go to some other dimension. Um, <laughs> It doesn't, this animal body is meant to feel pain. It's one of the ways that it sustains itself. There are diseases where you lose the capacity to feel pain, and those people tend not to live very long because they don't get the necessary feedback that something unpleasant is happening. So it's actually important for our livelihood that we are open to and feel uh, pain, which is one tendency not to feel it. And there's no way to actually sustain the experience of pleasure. It's just not what this animal body does. It's not what this animal heart and mind does. That discourse of the two arrows, um, most people will just know it as a summation, that you can live life occasionally being hit by one arrow, and maybe someone's jagging, jabbing you with one arrow at a time for a duration. So you can have hard experiences but it's saying that you can have a hard experience and non-reactivity or a capacity to breathe along with that experience. So you're just having to endure the hardship of one arrow. Or you can get spun out and reactive to the fact that you got hit by one arrow. And in that drama that ensues, which seems conventionally realistic, and some, something unpleasant happens and there'd be reactivity, but you actually, our hearts are capable of uh, training and getting strong enough that they actually can take a wider range of experiences without getting into agitation 
even if experiences are temporary or unpleasant, or as, pain, as pleasure fades, the mind doesn't have to get tripped up by that. But that usually takes some training. It's not, we're not born with that, but we're all born with the capacity to develop beyond the agitation of Vedna coming and going. That's really what the bulk of the discourse is about. So that imagery of the two arrows um, is common. You either live with one arrow existence or two arrow existence. And it's often not just two arrows. You can compound the arrows. So you get hit by one arrow and then it hurts and you're distraught and then why me? And so you can keep multiplying the arrows even though it was just one intrusion to begin with. In the discourse, the Buddha is asking uh, his practitioners, what is the difference between an ordinary person and someone who is well instructed and in the discipline? And uh, he says, ordinary people feel pleasure, feel pain and neutrality. People well into this path of awakening feel pleasure, pain and neutrality. What's the distinction? And he goes on to say, the distinction is when an ordinary person is touched with painful Vedana, they also experience grief and sorrow and lamentation and then they become distraught. They feel two pains, a physical and a mental, just as if a person were shot with an arrow and then right after they were shot with another one. So they would feel the pain of two arrows. A, well, uh, a well-trained and instructed disciple does not have despair and agitation and distraught and become distraught when uh, they feel unpleasant Vedana. So it's as if they're only hit by one arrow. Again, we just take a pause. This is one arrow spirituality. (laughs) And we actually have to come to terms with that. You know, Someone would have told me this early on, and I still would have had a holdout dream that I could practice. And somehow seeing somebody who's happy, no matter what's happening, I think they're they're beyond arrows. But they're actually capable of dealing with the arrows that come. But as you see them, it hasn't gotten into their heart, it hasn't gotten into their mind, hasn't agitated them. So you can't see the reaction. So it seems like they're out beyond the uh, being touched by unpleasantness or uh, having pleasure fade. That's still happening for them. And it's something that is worth saying and breathing with and letting it sink in because it's gonna be with you until you finally accept it that there's no way to get beyond the visitation of pain. Okay. (laughs) You gotta breathe there. You can't just intellectually check the box and say, okay, I agree, that's probably true. Or, "Hmm, I'm still waiting to see. What, when people have looked at this and become intimate and really studied life, there actually is no way to get out beyond painful experiences. But there is a way to not be tormented by them. That's an amazing thing about the human heart. So you get this one bad news 
that there's no way to arrange your life where you won't be visited by pain. But the human heart is capable of expanding and is strong enough to go out beyond where the pain causes torment. That's the difference that can be made. So there are uh, many stories about um, Tibetan practitioners escaping from Tibet after they were uh, imprisoned uh, by the Chinese government and tortured um, while they were imprisoned. And some of the famous ones that uh, people turn to, uh, very simple statements. They say, were you ever afraid while you were imprisoned? And they, a few of them said, yes, there actually was uh, some fear that came up. The fear was, I would hate my captor. They were being tortured, but they showed the human heart, not the Tibetan heart, the human heart, can actually be strong enough that hate doesn't have to be a response, or that fear doesn't have to be a response. But those are not people who just sort of walked into that experience. That comes through reflection, it comes through breathing with, it comes from expanding uh, your conscious experience when difficult experiences are happening. And to recognize that pleasure fades, and it tends to be what undermines the craving is a realistic intimacy with pleasure. It's worth having, it's just not worth clinging to because it's like clinging to water in your hand. It's definitely there, but it's not meant to stay. And gripping only squeezes it out faster. So enjoy it while it's there, please. Please enjoy the good food. Please enjoy the beauty here. Please enjoy the beautiful sounds. It's nourishment. But know it for what it is. In that moment, it's pleasant. In that moment, it's reassuring. But it's not, a, it's not something you can grab onto and fixate on. Uh, that's the misunderstanding. Intimacy shows that there definitely is pleasure, but the danger in this thinking that it's more permanent or trying to be, uh, make it more reliable than it ever could be by its actual nature, it's meant to come and go. And so does pain. It comes and it goes. When I was... Um, uh, first ordained with Saida Upandita, something that I am eternally grateful for him uh, for is that he didn't um, buy into any way that I was complaining and therefore putting a limit on what I could consciously experience. So I tried many ways to get a hall pass on life from him and uh, he was just such an immovable rock around that. So I would come in and oh, the first time I ordained, uh, when I ordained it was in January, and they give you these very thin polyester robes which are great in the heat, but they're, they're really thin, like tissue paper thin. And so in the cold mornings I could see my breath and the cold actually got onto me and started getting in me. I could feel it getting into my bronchioles and I could feel it getting into my lower back, and I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna freeze, I'm gonna get like pneumonia or the flu or something. So I went to him and I said, um, 
Saito, I think I made a mistake in ordaining in January. <laughs> uh, it's so cold, it really feels uh, threatening. Um, so if when I go out walking in the morning and I just have this thin robe, um, I'm getting incredibly cold. Uh, so what is your advice? And I thought if I framed it like that, any human with a heart would be like, oh my God, definitely stay in, stay warm. And he said, uh, more mindfulness is needed. <laughs> and the great thing about him saying more mindfulness was needed to any way I was trying to get out of reality was that you could always assume what he would say as you were working up your story of how you could get out of what was happening. So I had a passive-aggressive strategy, which is, oh, more mindfulness is needed? Fine, I'll get pneumonia. And then you will be like, oh, I can't believe I told this poor guy to go out walking in such a thin sheet. Oh my God, it's like, yeah, you were really hard on me. But to do it, I had to actually get pneumonia. So I was like, okay, more mindfulness is needed. Yep. I'm sure an American teacher wouldn't have done that. They're always like, oh, oh. <laughs> but not you. Like, okay. So I walked out and I was like, to really have it work, I have to follow his advice and have it not work. Then I'm a pure victim who nobly tried his best and see how your teachings don't work for such a tender one like me. So I went walking out and the cold got in. I was like, oh, I've never been this cold before. And I grew up in Rhode Island and oh, we got cold like this and always led to getting sick. And like, here it comes. I'm really going to get sick. But I'll try mindfulness. Let's see. Mindfulness somehow is going to overcome inherent biology. Let's just try this. And so I was mindful of it. I was like, okay, it's definitely cold and there's a lot of resistance. So I have to kind of like let go of the resistance and really be mindful of the cold. And when I did that, the contraction around the cold that was starting to like close off my bronchioles and this sense of impending illness, there was no, it had no grip on me in that moment. And I was so like, ah, oh, darn it. He's right. <laughs> that means more mindfulness is needed and I'm going to have to experience this much cold. And so I walked on a little bit further, my mind wandered and unconsciously I was like, this is too cold, this is too cold. And I was like, see, it's too cold. It's like, no, no, see, you're not being mindful. You have to get sick while being mindful. <laughs> so I really went into it, really just like, take me. And this oppressive energy that was starting to come in to protect me against the cold dissipated. And I was like, wow, I've never been this cold before. Like I'm, it's like in me, but it's, I can tell I'm not about to get sick. And then the sun rose and the, the first rays of sunshine hit me and I warmed up. And I was like, I'm, I'm healthy, and mindfulness actually worked in that situation. And again, I was like, that means every time I come to complain to him, he's going to have one up on me, that mindfulness actually, I should try it, because it actually might work. 
And I, that means there's a whole bunch of reality I'm going to have to feel. And that's what he's going to coach me to do. And he did. And I tried many ways to complain. So in that system, you're supposed to minutely describe your moment-by-moment experience. And I was in a monastery that was being built while I was in it. And it was right next to the kitchen where the cooks would talk and gossip. And so I was like, I was trying to be aware of my breathing. Noticed I was trying, but my attention was pulled to the sound of the saw and the hammer. I noted hammer blows and I came back, but before I could get my attention to the breath, there were more hammer blows. What would you suggest? More mindfulness is needed. It's not going to stop the hammer blows, and I'm not going to get to my breath. And I didn't. I had to be mindful when there were hammer blows. They were very hard not to be aware of. But the suffering came in resisting a range of experiences that I thought were unmeditative, that I could not... I couldn't meditate on the breath, but I could not suffer because there were hammer blows. Same with the talking of the cooks. I didn't understand any Burmese, but it's so uh, the attention is so gravitationally pulled towards conversation that I was tracking everything they were saying. I said, I wonder if I'll learn Burmese (laughs) just by having them talking, and I'll get so familiar, and bit by bit I'll learn it. But my mind was listening to them talk for days and days on end, and I was kind of suffering because, like, I'll never make headway. I'm trying to do mindfulness of breathing. They're talking. I cannot but keep my attention going to them and I'm trying to describe this. There's no hall pass. I'll have to be mindful of it. This is really hard. And one time I heard them talking they were talking in Burmese really fast. And it was and then my mind heard them say, Yates would not say so. There is no way that they just said Yates would not say so. <laughs> but my mind was so interested in what they were trying to say and then it just interpreted this one phrase like that. <laughs> but what Saidam Pandita was doing is he was not trying to give me the conditions of comfort that I could find ease in. There was enough comfort available that I stood a chance to have a greater range of experiences and train in those experiences and uncouple my well-being from a small realm to an expanded realm, and then ultimately the entire realm. And that's that's the direction, though it may take years, developing a capacity where it's strong sensations, but I'm not suffering because of them. I'm not aloof from them. I actually have built the capacity to feel the strong sensations of cold, the strong sensations of sharpness, the strong sensations that are unpleasant. I built the capacity to have pleasure come stay for an unknown amount of time, and then fade. And it didn't get sticky, and I didn't get wrapped up in it. And I built the capacity to be with neutral objects and not be bored by them, oppressively bored by them. So then Vedana would either be how I would get entangled and need some break from reality, and then put my effort into getting a different reality that I could finally be conscious in, or Vedana could be the very mode that I was expanding the realm I could be free in. 
but the cost was feeling a lot more. And we can all be very spiritually inspired in a moment of comfort to say, yes, I want to feel more. But feeling more means that you feel more and you end up feeling unpleasantness on its own terms. Also, when I ordained, uh, we had to walk with bare feet on this road that was being paved. In Burma, they put down big crushed rock, then little crushed rock, and then fine crushed rock, and they coat it with uh, tar. And they weren't at the tarring stage, and so I had to walk barefoot across this sharp rock, and every day they had 10 more yards of it, and then 10 more yards of it. And I did the math, and I was like, oh my God, this is going to be a mile of crushed rock I'm going to have to walk barefoot on every day. But I know I'm going to have to do it mindfully, because there's really no way out. I was like, okay, let me try mindfulness. Those are some intense sensations and I don't have to suffer over them, but I do have to be careful how I, I have to be aware how I put my foot down on that sharp rock. Sharp rock is now a part of my experience and it's just, it will eventually be tarred, but it comes. And in some of these experiences, getting cold and walking on hard rock, there is an option. So it always does seem like, well, you could not walk on it. You could put on a coat, but that's still is dealing with discomfort by choosing something more comfortable. Also, when I was in Burma, I was traveling around the hot season and I was on a bus and the air conditioning broke in the middle of hot season. So we lowered the windows to get some hot air blowing in on us. At least moved the air, but it was so hot. And then the the, the bus engine broke down and um, Night came and it was just as hot at night, but there was no wind. So we're sitting there in this baking, hot, hot, hot heat. And I was taking it breath by breath and saying I could suffer or I could not suffer. But to not suffer, I have to be very diligent to meet each of these moments. But if my mind wavers, it goes right into it like, oh my God, this is unbearable. And I come back. Be in it. It's the least amount of suffering you're going to experience to be with it. But then the mosquitoes came. <laughs> and I, I probably didn't, but I was like, is anybody seeing this? <laughs> like, this is not doable. I'm just barely meeting the heat of this experience. And if I, if I take off my uh, heavy clothing, the mosquitoes get on me. If I put any clothing on, the heat is unbearable. And there's no, there's no place to be comfortable here. Is anybody seeing this? And it's like, yeah, you're seeing it. You're seeing it, and there's, Upandita has shown you, there's one way out. There is no unhot place. There is no unmosquitoed place. But there is a place where you don't add a second arrow to this. And that makes a huge amount of difference. The mosquitoes and the heat were the first arrow. Being able to meet that through the course of a long night where I was sleepy, but it was better to actually meet the experience moment by moment, kept me from actually really being tormented by that experience. So it ended up being very liberating. And that's what I was experiencing when I was camping is I was exposed to a greater range of experiences and after a while it became normal to be exposed to a greater range of experiences. 
So my effort wasn't being put into how do I keep renegotiating this so I'm back in my comfort zone. Now it's not that you look for pain. Unpleasant experiences come like the wind. You don't have to seek them out. You don't have to sit through a lot of pain to be noble. Unpleasant experiences come like guests in a guest house, like pain, like uh, different types of wind. And if they're not coming, you don't have to seek them out to ennoble yourself. But there's a type of heart and mind that doesn't begin to congeal around comfort, doesn't begin to congeal around pleasure, that knows that this is a pleasant experience and leaves it at that. This is a, uh, a mild, comfortable experience and I'm open. I'm, I'm actually open to what comes next. This is the onset of some discomfort and I'm watching myself contract around it. Like, okay, that's the old habit. I'm not going to override that but I'm going to be aware that I'm starting to add a second arrow agitation to this primary discomfort in my body or an unpleasant sound or an unpleasant smell or unpleasant taste or a stream of unpleasant thoughts, a stream of unpleasant emotions. If you're not conscious and if you don't have capacity in that moment, you'll go into reactivity, but you can begin, that begins to show you, it begins to show you what second arrow living is like. Secondary living, you're mindful of it. There's a primary challenge and there's no capacity to be there with it. So the mind goes into distress. It wants to get out, it wants to numb out, it wants a different experience, it wants to push against. And all those strategies end up being agitating. They might work because you might actually get rid of the unpleasant experience, but what you've done is you've only given yourself that strategy. If I can get rid of the unpleasant, I can be comfortable again. If I can somehow prolong this pleasure, I get more access to it. And that's what most of us have done in our uh, ordinary way of approaching life. With some extension, because there's no perfectly comfortable living, uh, so we all have some range. But that range can shrink uh, if we're comfort-oriented and we think that that's what should be happening. And there's something that happens when we're open to a greater range. There are many ways that this creeps in. In uh, relationships, uh, often intimacy uh, deepens until you've hit the first discomfort. And then both people unconsciously agree not to touch whatever is uncomfortable, but that tends to also stall the amount of intimacy there is in that relationship. Being able to consciously go beyond what's comfortable often is the, is the invitation to go deeper in intimacy, but it means feeling a greater range of experiences. That's true emotionally, it's true mentally, it's true with sounds, it's true with layers of the body. Um, so there are a couple of things I wanna, I wanna make sure that are being communicated. This is not pain orientation. More pain is not better, but being open to unpleasant experiences before you respond to them is increasing the range where you can be conscious. And being open to the reality of pleasant experiences versus going kind of uh, sleepy or trying to congeal around them and seeing their temporary nature. That will, that will inform you, that will uh, let your heart have a real relationship to these Vedanas that keep coming and going.
When I uh, got back from Burma, actually the reason I left Burma is um, my health was very good for the first year I was there. And then uh, without really, still don't quite know why, um, my my health really dropped and I got incredibly tired, uh, this deep, deep, deep fatigue. And um, it started off another chapter of my practice. I couldn't be ordained and couldn't really deal with the rigor of monastic life. And I came back to the States to get healthy and I was gonna go back, but um, it's 20 years later and I actually haven't gotten over the illness. I still have to work a lot with this fatigue that I know some of the conditions of it, so I'm better at managing it, but it still blows in like the wind. And there's this unknown reason that my energy just starts dropping and to be upright is very exhausting and uh, different muscles get inflamed. And there was a point where I was just waiting it out. I waited it out for a week, it wouldn't go away. Waited out a month, it wouldn't go away. Waited out for a couple of months, I'd never been ill for that long, wouldn't go away. Waited out for a year, didn't go away. Waited out for a couple of years. I was gonna go back to the monastery and keep going with my practice, but didn't know how to deal with a prolonged illness. And there became a time where I was like, this is my path. I'm not waiting out this unpleasantness so I could get back to good meditation. Like not waiting out this practice, I mean, this pain until something else happens. This is what my life is actually like now. There's a lot of pain and it comes, it blows in like the wind. Um, and so this illness, which I would have called a misfortune, has been one of my greatest um, trainings in how to be conscious with outside of comfort. And it also shows me the danger of beginning to try to secure comfort because my illness won't let me have comfort for very long. But that actually ends up being a good thing. And I'm comfortable now at this particular moment, so I can always like, oh, it's so good that I have it. But <clears throat> when it comes on, there's still, it's like, oh, whoa, 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 slow down. Oh, no, not this again, because it's unpleasant. It is unpleasant, the pain that visits. But I've learned over 20 years of having this illness that the quicker I turn towards it, the less suffering I'll be in. And it's taught me a lot about turning towards what's happening versus pulling back from or trying to secure something that isn't actually happening. And while I wouldn't wish this path on anybody, I totally wish the outcome on everybody. And the way to have the outcome is to practice. If you deepen your intimacy, as we're doing here, you don't have to be informed by chronic illness, but you might be. That type of wind might blow in. But just by heightening the intimacy you have moment by moment, you're gonna feel life. It's the consequence of waking up is you're gonna feel a much greater range of experiences. And the old way of looking at things means that as you feel things, you're going to be less happy because that might be true in your conventional living. But you have the chance to learn, especially on a one month retreat like this, is you can begin to untangle your well-being from unpleasant experiences that come and go. Your well-being isn't dependent upon pleasure. It isn't dependent upon comfort. 
cultivating it, getting a break, that's fine, in moments of pleasure, moments of comfort, but it's not actually handcuffed to pleasant experiences. And the arising of pain doesn't have to bring in torment inside. You actually can have capacity to breathe with a much greater range. And something you actually have to watch out for as you begin to understand meditation and see that you can navigate it and make wise choices in it, sometimes we then like certain sittings and we kind of hope that that's more of what we're going to be practicing for. And you just have to watch out that there's a tightening or there's a shutting down of true openness to whatever part of the stream you're in. We're building a capacity to be conscious in the stream of reality. And there are many ways to do that, and we're doing that here. But sometimes we can even start to use meditation for comfort and not meditation for honest intimacy. Honest intimacy leads to a harder to attain well-being, but it's much more reliable when it's cultivated because there are then fewer and fewer circumstances to which you're not well. And so unconditional well-being is well-being in all conditions. And while you're here, you're going to be visiting uh, a wide range of conditions. And mindfulness is very helpful towards orienting towards that. But so is the willingness to be content in those conditions. And I suggest that as part of the garden you're cultivating is don't endure hard circumstances so you can get back to well-being later. See if there's, a, if there's an ability to find a kind of well-being. It's not a, usually a happy, happy, joy, joy well-being, but you can be less tormented by the fact that there's unpleasant experiences. And that is the direction to head, because that actually liberates fully liberates. And there's a well-being that can't be touched by the changing Vedna, changing experiences, experiences that are out beyond control, because the well-being isn't dependent upon certain circumstances. And so that is why I believe uh, the Buddha made short lists, they're memorable, but everything on the list ends up being critical. And he has four foundations of mindfulness, could have made it three, easier to remember, but Vedana ends up making it on this short list. And the reason I believe it makes it onto this short list is if you're open to being intimate and building your capacity to be mindful of Vedana, learn its true nature, learn its range, that you'll find that it ends up being uh, uh, a crucial ingredient to a very trustworthy uh, contentment and well-being um, that's hard to get at if you can't actually um, stay intimate no matter what the range of Vedana that's arising. So that said, why don't we take a moment
come into a simple posture. gentle uh, vow that I welcome you to take is um, I will I will gently extend the range of experiences that I'm willing to show up in I won't force it but I'll cultivate uh, mindful intimacy no matter what's arising, and I'll share that uh, coaching from Upandita, that your heart is actually capable of finding well-being outside of what is comfortable. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.